Hi everyone, Ben Eisner here. Welcome to another episode of Knitted Heart, where I talk with endlessly curious masters of their craft about their passions, professions, and their shared hope to bring unity, reconciliation, and a reframing of public discourse through their work. Today's episode is part two of my discussion with Emmy award-winning actor and director Joan Darling. If you've yet to hear part one, I encourage you to do so first, as it provides a fluid precursor for the present conversation. One thing I encourage you to do, listen at normal speed and allow the spaces naturally present in this free flow discussion to speak to you. As one of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts said, space constitutes something significant. And I say, it's the space between the inked lines on the page that are pregnant with potency. With that, let's get back to where we left off with the one and only Joan Darling. I can't stand lies in art. Mm. I can't stand expedience in art. Uh, I hate, and I'm always, the word I use is cynical. Mm. When you see something in a movie that you know they put in because they think it will make the audience like it. Mm. I find that cynical. And I don't, I just, that's just not what I enjoy. I I just enjoy losing my breath with shock and delight. That's my favorite thing. Losing your breath with shock and delight. Yeah. Oh, I wrote something down. I just read, I'm going to read this to you. Hang on. Because uh, I read it the other day. I forgot I wrote it down and talk about cool. Ah, here it is. <clears throat> the excitement of being creative with no assurance of if it's going to be good. Mm. It's so. It's isn't it liberating though if you can just oh really my. embrace that? Yeah, yeah. And that's why when I got that note back from you when we exchanged things about the way that you were working and stuff. Um when I got that note back from you that's why with your permission I passed it on to the whole class because you absolutely understand right to the bottom of your soul the same and value the same things I do. Hmm. That means a lot to me, Joan. Yeah. Thank you. It means a lot to me, oh. too. I mean, seriously. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I, I think what I'm super attracted to in any um, production scenario is mystery. Like, I, 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 like, want to give lots of rope and room and latitude for actors to kind of just find their truth in the moment and not have to say, Nope, you have to say it this way or, um, you know, you make sure you interact this way or you step into it this way. Like, because the second you just kind of, I, 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 I let go of just wanting to control it. I think that's where I find all the magic is like, Oh, there it is. There's the truth. There it is right there. And I want that. I know that's exactly how I feel about it is, uh, and if there's something that's untruthful, um, I can't live with it. I mean, in the sense that, and I've said to, you know, I think I said it in class, if you know something is still wrong and you move on, you will have to live with that on film for the rest of your life. Looking yeah. and going, oh, no, why didn't I fix that? Why didn't I fix that? Yeah, because we, we all know the truth. Like when we can spot the truth when it's presented. It's, right. it's undeniable. 
And it doesn't matter your level of education. It doesn't matter anything except the, 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 the commonality of human experience. Yeah. You know, and it's one of the things that, to me, especially at my age, is so puzzling about the times we're living in, is that don't people understand that the building falls down if you don't maintain the foundation of the truth? Mm. Yeah, um, but a lot of people love to hold fast to the way things are supposed to work, and yeah. they stick with it. And yeah, I think it's because they're they're afraid. It's like I was talking about earlier. A lot of teachers will tell you, you know, uh, if you put your right foot, if you step on your right foot first every time you act, you you'll be good. And then everybody goes, "Oh boy, I can step on my right foot and I'll be fine." where people like you and I are looking for danger. Yes. We want to jump off the building and not know if we're going to live until we get to the ground. Yes. That I'm so attracted to that because um I think that's where you're going to find the truth. You yeah. that's the only place you'll find the truth. Right. Well, and and I think that one of the things Joan that um I, I was really taken with just even thinking about this conversation is um a lot of people on the surface will be like oh this is a podcast for actors and artists and you know philosophers yeah. people in the film department or film film um world but these are some really truly universal foundations of us just being human beings you know yeah um and and you know whether it be a you know campfire stories or myths or you know um fables and fairy tales that we hold fast to um that kind of are can be teachers through the centuries these kinds of um mysteries about learning to let go and trust and not knowing what's around the corner um and why that leads to truthful acting it it connects to living every single day you know walking out to get your mail you know so I, i'm yeah. i think my hope for even this conversation and future conversations in this podcast is that this is these are universal human truths and wisdoms that people can just apply to their own lives whether they're an accountant or you know uh, a scientist or you know a, a, anything you know what i mean there the, yeah. the, this seeking and living for the truth and how we apply it in film and television um, is kind of the way towards fulfillment and balance and peace. Do you know where I'm trying to go with this? Oh, I know exactly where you're trying to go. And I totally, totally agree with you. Um, I think yeah, I, I, I never thought this before until this moment. But I think you're not living in harmony with nature if you try to nail it down. That that what we do is is we're really showing it like it really is. What is it really like to be a person in this uh, uh, this set of circumstances? What is it really like? Oh, and another thing to the list of things that you said. Um, jokes. Mm. Jokes are incredibly, the jokes are built totally on the truth or they don't work. Huh. 
True. I mean, the jokes you tell, you right. know, and they, and they're also built on surprises. Jeez. You know, like two ducks work walk into a bar, yeah. and they say we'll have two uh, uh, cosmopolitans, and uh, the bartender says, "How do you want to pay for it?" And the duck says, "Put it on my bill." yeah what do you do with that (laughs) that's it 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 makes total sense and no nonsense at all exactly and you know what that goes back to the power of um both and it's not either or it's both and strausberg meisner it's like living with the healthy balance of both. Um, that's the truth. And yeah. it's funny, like it goes back to my friend Russell, to be and not to be, that is the answer. Yeah, well, that, right, exactly. Well, and not only that, I, I was thinking, because every once in a while I'll meditate or I'll try to think up an affirmation, and one of my new affirmations was, uh, since I can't control anything, um, I I would like to play ball with whatever the universe sends me. Ah, oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, Joan, I remember at the very end of the, our Sundance director's class, um, we kind of did a round robin. Is that what it's called? Round robin? Yeah. We went around to the classmates and everyone did their kind of big takeaway. You said something that, like, I've got it right here. Just swing with the universe. Right. <laughs> like sit with that. Like seriously. Like if we yeah. really sat with that in whatever discipline we're putting our energy into, COVID-19 and this kind of great pause yeah. globally, like, yes, I know there's a lot of suffering and loss of loved ones going on right now. And that's not to invalidate any of that. It's very serious, heavy stuff but learning what what the present moment is like could you imagine if whatever we put our hands to whether we're directors or actors or anything like what would happen if we just swung with the universe universe. we would be a much more peaceful benevolent race of creatures yeah i don't understand i mean i literally feel like it's not just a foreign language it's even more incomprehensible to me than that is people who get something out of power i truly don't get that i want the power to do my art the way i do it but i just take that power or freedom yeah the freedom exactly but i don't have any sense of what somebody gets out of pushing somebody around Mm. or you know i don't get that i don't, I don't know what is the feeling of pleasure in that insecurity yeah you're right it's fear and yeah. and of course it it and the other thing too is you know and this is because i struggle with the virus thing because of my age and because i kind of have a pre-asthma condition mm. so i feel like if i show up in the emergency room they're going to just put me in the hall and say you're a lost case anyway you know, but, um, seconds. yeah, but, but so it's, it had me really anxious for quite a while. And then I stopped watching the news and I got a lot less anxious. But if I really think about it, it's like thinking in two levels. One is we're here going through a human experience. 
you know, and that's it. That's what we're here and that's yeah. what we're doing and with everything that works in our brains and doesn't work and all of that. But if you look at history, the longest lasting government of any kind was Sparta, which lasted 500 years. Every other form of government has melted away and disappeared well within, we're the, I think, the second longest form of government. Um, so it, it all seems to wash away. You know, uh, we go crazy because of, um, the, the, we go crazy at the idea that the human race might be extinguished. But we yeah. kind of take for granted the fact that the dinosaurs had it for a while. Yeah. The birds had it for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we're the guilty ones. We've kind of made the biggest contribution towards our possible extinction. And I think yeah. if that happened, I think the, the planet would be happy. That is a really <laughs> sad oh, that's thought. Great. but That's a, oh my God. Is that, the planet would go, oh, thank God, they're yeah. out of here. <laughs> I You're mean, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what. Well, and also the dinosaurs supposedly, this is really funny, but it's true. They did themselves in by farting. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, they they kept giving off noxious gases until they, and then the Ice Age came and that finished them off. But that was a big problem for dinosaurs. It all came down to the elephant. I'm oh, sorry, the dinosaur farts. That's what that was. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, those, we should write a philosophy book called The Dinosaur Farts, and good luck to you. Good luck to you. That's my PhD, um, PhD <laughs> dissertation right. coming up. Well, and like, who says the earth is supposed to last? Right, exactly. Because we can do all this, you know, we can spend all this money on on climate control and and repairing the universe and a meteorite will come along and blow us out of the water anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you like think of it context wise, I mean, there's probably trillions, if not more trillions of galaxies and uncounted amount of planets within those galaxies. Right. Like what makes us so special? Right. Well, you know, we don't want to go too far in this right. conversation. No, we are right? special. We're special. Yeah, we're special. There, we're special. there was an incredible article, I think, in the old Esquire that was talking about life on another planet and mm -hmm. is there a God? Mm -hmm. And they talked about a camera. What were all the parts of a camera? Mm -hmm. And then they talked about what were all the parts of an eye? Mm -hmm. Wow. Who could construct an eye? Yeah. Not only that, but it, uh, there's a, a, a psychologist named Milton Erickson. If you haven't ever read about him, get a book called um, Uncommon Therapy. But he's very much in the vein that you and I are. He's, uh, he really, as a matter of fact, I've been teaching for years when a friend of mine came up to me and said, I found a book. I never give people books, but I'm giving you this book. And it was about this guy, Milton Erickson. And I discovered that I was doing things in my class that he would do without ever having read about him or know anything about him. Wow. Like if I'm talking to somebody and I really want them to get the information, I watch them and there comes a moment when I see something about them being ready and I'll snap my fingers and keep talking. And when I snap my finger, I didn't know why I did that, but I knew I did it and I knew it worked. He did it 
as part of therapy. He would get them to move their brain. Their brain would go over here for a second, so they were undefended, so you could drop wow. the information in. Now, I'd been doing that for years and never had never even heard of him. When I, and that's also what I think laughter does. When you, when you make somebody laugh, you can shovel information in there <laughs> that they don't even know they got. True. It is really true. Comics are activists. Yeah, right. Exactly. This is, I, I was uh, wide open and um, ready for this to go deep, and I'm so glad it did. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's great fun. It's so much fun to think about. But it really, you know, as we start, as I started talking about how, uh, how, how big this whole thing is, mm. that we're, you know, we're just one blip. Humans are just one blip along the way. Um, and we, of course, feel like we're very important and we shouldn't disappear. But historically speaking, and same thing with governments, Gore Vidal 25, 30 years ago said the way this country was set up, it was going to end up in a dictatorship. Serious? Serious. It's happening. Yeah. Like it's yeah, happening and, right now. Yeah. And you think about it, you say, well, how did that happen? And it's because there was somebody came along who was, who just has no, that does nothing, but I don't know. It's, it's obviously everybody in the world tries to figure out what the hell it is. It's, it's no it's empathy. A, yeah, no empathy, but it's an automatic reaction of uh, defense and rage all the time. Yeah. There's not a breath of space for anything to happen in. And he's always been like that because I was in New York when he was there and he was a joke. That Remember that story from the campaign when uh, they talked about him as a young man pretending to be his press agent to call oh, yeah, up and right. talk about the women he was dating? Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it does fascinate me, though, because how did he keep it up? I'm, I, I mean... Well, he did things like, you know, how many covers of hideous pictures of Hillary Clinton with stories like she was running a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor. <laughs> Right. Were on. If you saw the wall that WMSNBC did of like 55 covers of the Inquirer with her, you know, with one of those wonderful pictures that you can get, Hillary ring, put her in jail, all that stuff. And people walked into the supermarkets and saw that cover right at the checkout. The Inquirer always was at the checkout. So people were, he had a, an uncanny, or he tied himself up with people like Roger Ailes and the guy who was doing the inquiry. Yeah, that they uh, were with people who uh, knew how to do that. Yeah, he had, all, he had friends in all the most uh, convenient places. Yeah, and also of a, of a like. Uh, you're, you're too young, but I was in my teens when the Joe McCarthy thing happened. And that was as, in, uh, go look at uh, the movie Trumbo with- um, Oh, with uh, uh, Brian Cranston. Cranston. Brian Cranston. Yeah, if, if you, you look at that movie and you say, the same kind of thing is going on now, but in a larger scale. And what my hope is, because it was so weird, that committee was so powerful and so corrupt. 
my ex-husband, Eric Darling, was in a singing group with Alan Arkin. And, when, and they were very successful. And they, all of a sudden, Alan called Eric and said, listen, I just heard from my lawyer that the House Un-American Activities Committee is going to call me in to testify because I sang at a birthday party when I was 14. And we went, I mean, that would be the end of the singing group at that time. They would never be booked again, except by the mafia who booked right. the Weavers. Right. But, um, and then he called back and he said he heard back from his lawyer and for $5,000, he doesn't have to appear. Unbelievable. So he was so powerful. But on Friday, one Friday afternoon, Joe Welsh said, sir, have you no shame? And by Monday, he was gone. And Roy Cohen, uh, Trump's tutor, was second in command for that rodeo. He was second in command to Joe uh, McCarthy. Isn't it? I think Mark Twain was the one who said, yeah, history doesn't repeat itself, but it, it definitely rhymes. <laughs> Absolutely. That's perfect. Yeah, what is one? <laughs> that's great. <laughs> well, you know what it, Carl Sandburg said? What's that? Carl Sandburg said, the bomb should be dropped. It should be dropped on the head of the one who spoke so clearly. Whoa. <laughs> Jeez! Holy smokes! <laughs> hey, we're gonna end up crying. <laughs> I know this is this thing's gonna like lead us to complete tears. Um, yeah, yeah, but it is it it, it it's kind of dumbfounds me. How did how did sixty million people buy into that? Because it's not a Republican or Democrat thing. Like seriously, this is not politics. Yeah, right. Agreed. I, 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 it's like black and white to me. Um, how can 60 million people think that a braggadocio pussy grabber is uh, perfectly fit for being the president of the United States of America? It's, it's, it's beyond belief. And uh, I used to say to my husband, I think the big mistake we make is we don't really understand how stupid most people are. And I think part of it is, it's not, it, it, and also we, if you take the whole culture, everything that happens, uh, the fast food culture, people that I knew that are, were Republicans who were very intelligent would quote things to me about, say, the Clinton Foundation was a sham and they stole all the money. So I went online and I found all the articles and the truth was, from the uh, objective uh, a group that assesses charities, the Clintons were at the top. The total expenditure for their uh, for running the the um, charity is twelve percent. That's unbelievably low wow. expenditure. So I did all this research, and I came back to this guy who was very smart and educated, and I said to him, "Do you know about this?" And he was kind of embarrassed and dumbfounded and but what embar what em what embarrassed me for him and dumbfounded me for him was he he took it for granted that what he saw on the page was true he took it for granted 
Yeah. And also I found one of the reasons with the coronavirus why I had to stop watching any news and take out of my phone any news feeds because one, I don't know if any single thing I hear either on my side or the other side is true. That's, mm -hmm. I have no idea where the truth is about anything. Um, and it's the concoction of the drama. Obama had to deal with Ebola and that was dealt with and there, people barely heard about it. Now we're like living in inside the mind of Trump with, which is to me, I mean, that's really what it feels like. We are now forced, if you pay attention to the news at all, to live inside his mind with all of its horror and, and drama and, and uh, expediency in terms of what's said or done or thought about. Um, and then the, my, here's my, oh, now we'll get back to the happy part. Here's what I decided. <laughs> I decided that it was like, being invested in the NFL. Hmm. You know, the first comes the draft and you're there and you're looking and, oh my God, are they going to get this guy? And say, yeah. comes the draft. And then you start watching the preseason and who's going to get who's that and who's going to win. And you're going, your whole life becomes about that. And then when the Super Bowl happens and it's over, you live in depression for a while because NFL is over. Well, yeah. politics is the same way. Hmm. You have to yes. join the drama. Join the drama. And what's really interesting is something that is so completely out of his control. He, you know, it's like, he's like, okay, wise guy. Yeah. You think you can fuck around with China? Yeah, right. <laughs> Here's a funny one. <laughs> Here's this. Put this in your pipe and yeah. smoke it. Yeah. yeah. But um. we live in, also what fascinates me is look at what we're doing. We've gotten to know each other. We've never been in the same room at the same time. True. We have affection for each other and appreciation for each other. And we're having a nice long conversation about stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't think of how many years ago, but when I was growing up, there, when I was 12 and 13, there was no such thing as television. When we finally got a television set, we would sit, turn it on at 3 o'clock because that was when the test pattern came on. We would watch the test pattern and wait for Uncle Milty. And you're even, the difference in our generations, you're, you're so used to this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm still going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I forget that we're not in the same room. So there's, there's something going on. There's a change happening. And I have a nephew who was one of the original computer hackers when he was, uh, you'll love this story. When he was 13, he went on a field trip from Brookline, Massachusetts, Brookline High, to MIT. And uh, he came back from the field trip, and about a week or so later, my brother and sister-in-law started getting calls from older men asking for Stanley, who was 13. Now, they weren't homophobic or anything like that, but they did think, what the hell is going on here? So they asked Stanley, who are these guys who are calling you? And Stanley said, well, when I went to MIT, um, I, go, I split out from the group and I went into the artificial intelligence lab and told them that the last paper they published was all wrong. And then he set up the artificial intelligence program at MIT at 13. And the calls he was getting were um, 
running the program, questions they had about running the program. Asking a 13 year old. Yeah. <laughs> now the, the, uh, the better part of the story that, that was, you know, there's a lot of stories about Stanley. He, at 16, he was with the Stanford group, the Microsoft group. And he said that group um, invented every piece of software. There's been no new software d developed since that group. He said, all that's changed is the delivery systems. And so about three years ago, I happened to say to him, hey, Stanley, did you do anything special at that Stanford group? And he said, yeah, I, I created Microsoft Finder. Oh, <laughs> I, said, I just did that one afternoon. <laughs> I did Microsoft Finder. But he told me, and I love this. He, it, for me, it like ties all these universal things that you and I keep feeling the whisperings of. Yeah. He said there was a, when computers first were really, when people really discovered them, the hackers and everybody discovered them. He said there was a big meeting in Washington, D.C. about what is it that they wanted to do with this technology. And what they wanted to do was to create a library that had all the information in the world in it that you could reach immediately. And they didn't know how to do it because they were, there was a missing link. And oh when gosh. they created the link, that's what they called it. Unbelievable. This is your nephew? Yeah. So your <laughs> nephew pretty much invented the internet. So, uh, well, not, Al Gore. No, no, Al Gore. <laughs> no, he just did Finder, Microsoft Finder. But, but uh, that story about those guys and what it was they originally wanted to do, you know, it's like a classic mythology story because if you want to blame anything, for the president we have, you can blame the internet. Blame the internet. You can blame Facebook and Twitter and yes. Instagram. Yep. See, so it's like it's like all those classic science fiction stories. We somehow seem to have invented something that's going to destroy us. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we don't know how to use it. We don't know what to do. It's, it's, it's just way beyond even our capabilities to even process it. Yeah. And well, and also another interesting thing, this is my Downton Abbey theory, is Downton Abbey is really about what happened to, what happens to a culture when it, when it goes through a major shift, going from agricultural to industrial. You know, the first time they had a phone in Downton Abbey and mm -hmm. how, were they gonna, how were these big mansions going to survive? what was going to happen to the lower class where they were going to have to learn to type and go out and get jobs. Everything changed when they went from agricultural to industrial. And there's, oh, it's um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I love him. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. He said, he said, uh, anytime the culture goes through a shift like that, when we're now going from the industrial to the digital, nobody knows how to live. No one scares knows how to the live. shit out of everybody. Yes. Um, you know, Joan, I had a, the other day, I kind of had this moment of consolation. Um, and it, I got this, uh, deep kind of sense of comfort, this voice that told me that this entire experience globally is going to draw forth the artists like the art true artistry is right. going to 
kind of emerge in a whole new level and face and um definition and medium um it's it's doing something it's it's drawing forth uh something from a deeper well i think um creatively um because you know it's art that is kind of leads the way in terms of culture and where we're going you know well and from a spiritual point of view we're all connected yes you know and this echoes that yeah this will you know it, it destroys geography it destroys uh time and space are all different um and so it may be and here's a, i love thinking things like this it may be that if we would just shut up we would know everything yes but oh we're God. making so much noise <laughs> So this may be up. what it really is. This is it. And I also was thinking about trees. <laughs> I have a friend who is an arborist who did all the trees at um, the Getty Museum. I mean, he really big time. And he, he was, he's an actor also. And he came into my class with a little lecture that he was practicing for, uh, that he was going to give. And he was talking about trees. You may know this, but do you know that all trees are connected through the roots? So yeah. if you have a stand of trees, they're all connected. And that if a tree on the far left of that group gets a bug that's dangerous to it, that tree sends out the word to all the other trees so that they can create a poison or, or some kind of secretion that will kill off the bug. Incredible. Think about that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, yeah, if the trees can do it, um, right (laughs) wouldn't you think that we could figure that out yeah um yeah isn't there like a mother tree what wait isn't the book called the the secret like the secret life of trees is that what the book is no it's but this is my friend who's an arborist who's telling me this yeah but that 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 book is about that so there's a mother tree right that in every group right and then when she's about to kind of pass on she distributes all of her nutrients to all well, the other, other trees. trees through the root system. Isn't that yeah, it's kind of like, Yeah, and it's kind of like buying a burial plot. Mm. You bury yourself in the ground and you can return all your nutrients. Yeah, dust to dust. Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful stuff. Um, so I, what I want to do, if you have time for this, Joan, um, this is what I want to call the everything important I learned in life. I learned from Joan Darling lightning round. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. So, this is a lightning round. Okay. And yeah, okay. so this is all stuff that I gleaned from our class together. Yeah. So, so I'm just going to give you some prompts and let's okay. see what we get. Let's see where we get here. Um, develop an eye for the truth. If you don't, you'll be a dead person very shortly, <laughs> either literally or figuratively. Um, many directors mistake that a scene is about feelings, but feelings are actually the tail of the dog. Yes, scenes are about what happens between the characters. The feelings are a result of what happens to you and what decisions you've made about it. They are not the scene. 
they're not the story they're not the drama not the drama it's really good um fight for the truth instead of knowing you can solve it <laughs> yeah well uh easy <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind is easy answers are dumb answers <laughs> <laughs> easy answers are dumb answers i love it um the less direction you give an actor the more alive they feel and the more hardy their performance will be absolutely the if you can lead an actor to discover something so that they feel it's their creation it never wears out mm. as opposed to uh, you telling them something and then them trying to carry out what you told them i'm always trying to seduce the actor with as little as possible or as oblique as possible to them finding what i'm looking for and when when they find it, uh, it they can repeat it um, a zillion takes. If it's been imposed on them, the takes begin to kind of disintegrate. The life of the take goes away. Yeah, well, doesn't that just relate to like how we should just abide as humans just in real <laughs> life too? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I told you, yeah, this is I, universal I, stuff. Yeah, well, and I love, I, well, you know what we're trying to do. We're supposed to, we're trying to, one, act as if we were alive, mm. and two, show life like it really is. Mm. So one of the wonderful things about pursuing this art form is if you really are pursuing it and, and have very high standards, all you're doing is uncovering more and more about how you function and how the world functions. Yeah. So yeah, it's discovery. It's like I wake up every morning. We all wake up every morning and it's, it's the great adventure. Right. Right. Oh, I, you know what, Joan, I do have one more thing that you said that I think was so amazing. So respond to this one to you. I'm sorry. Um, the more trash you read, the more you'll be able to tell the story to the actor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's really true. The more, you need to be able to tell an actor a story from a very once upon a time, isn't this great fun point of view. Uh, an actor can't act the existential crisis of the 42nd year of a man's life. Hmm. They can act, should I divorce her or not? Hmm. You know, and, and also it's the uh, the really good uh, directors tell a very good story. They tell a story that the actor wants to be in. Hmm. They say, hey, listen, this is this scene is so cool because in this scene, if you can get her to do such and such, at the end of the take, I'll give you a quarter. <laughs> and you're immediately going to be really looking at her, really trying to really, you know. Get that quarter. Yeah, get that quarter. It's it's once upon a time language. Yeah, like you, once upon a time. You, and that's and you. If you. Yeah, it, no matter. And you'll have actors who talk to you in intellectual terms. And your job is to say, 
he says, you know, the thing and the product and the this and the that and sugar and his life and his food and his therapy and his blah, and you'd go, yeah, he's really scared. Jeez. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Universal truths. Um, so I think by way of just kind of bringing this stuff all full circle, your extra time at home, you know, being completely physically secluded from normal life and people. Um, at least for me, I have found a lot more room for space, you know? Yeah. Um, has the space kind of brought about any deeper epiphanies, revelations, kind of like, oh, wow, yes, that just rings true so deep inside of me. I mean, have, have you come upon anything that you may not have found um, as, a, as a result of this great pause? Well, a couple of things, actually. One is the NFL story I told you. Uh -huh that as a human being, I choose to play in the drama or not. Mm. I choose to be all upset over, you know, Mitch McConnell, or, or that's something that's happening over there and I'm not even there. It's the NFL, they're playing ball and I'm pretending somehow to myself that I'm part of that. And, and it reminded me that when I was young, I wasn't aware of politics at all. You know, I mean, I. I you know, got uh, petitions for Stevenson and, you know, did, did all the things you do when you were young. But the bottom line was I was busy trying to live a life and make, get a job and earn a living. I, as I got older, I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is I, I reminded myself that all of these dramas that happen, that's all they are is dramas. And we have to agree to go along with it or not. Hmm. It's different if it's a Salem witch trial and they're going to burn you, you know, that's right. a, that's a, another consequence. But most of the time you can really duck out of, you don't have to join the drama. I remember when 9-11 happened, uh, one of a friend of mine in Santa Fe, very educated and high spiritual being. Uh, I said, oh my God, that's the, the twin towers and the this and the that and the other. And he said, yeah, he says, it's really very dramatic out there right now. And I went, oh, my God, I get that. You know, it's part of what I was talking about earlier. You have to really be involved in the drama in order to get anything out of power. Yeah. You have to write a whole drama. So that was, there's, there's that reminder, which I'm still struggling with. Um, the other thing on a personal basis is, I'm always trying to be a responsible person. And I get, I, I might put it off, but my homework is always meet a deadline. My homework is always done on time. And I, you know, and I've read the scripts before I, you know, work with the people and I've done it. And because of the amount of time here, I suddenly have whispers of the fact that, especially now, I don't have to do anything except be. Mm. I can read Hillary Mantel's third book <laughs> on Cromwell that I've been waiting for for four years. Finally. If that's what I actually feel like doing. Wow. 
and the other thing is that I had, I, I, for quite a while when I got back home, I wasn't feeling well because of the asthma thing and allergies here, you know, so I was terrified about the coronavirus and all of that. And I think I'm getting around to realizing what I said before, to, which we re-realize these things all the time, which is I don't have, you know, I'm in my 80s. I'm going to die soon unless I live to 170, you know, which I don't think. Well, you're one of those candidates. I could envision you being one of those 107 year old candidates. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) But, but, uh, and also look at, look at this one for construct. The possibility of getting coronavirus and dying is exactly the same possibility of a brick falling from the top of the hospital when I'm being carried out after I've been born and killing me. You know, we are living in jeopardy all the time as little human beings, but we learned how not to pay attention to it. We've learned how not uh, to pay attention to it. Yeah, and for me, the choice is paying attention to it doesn't allow me to have the fun I'm having with you now. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's not, that is, that is beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Joan. Um, I've got a friend who his great grandfather died at like 99 and he was at on his deathbed and everyone was waiting around the bed. Like, Grandfather, if there's anything you could pass on to us, one thing about life, what would it be? And he said, don't worry. (laughs) Because most of the things that you spent your life being afraid of don't ever happen. It's just like, wow. Yeah, that's great. Isn't that powerful? It's so yeah, simple. that's absolutely wonderful. I was at a, uh, I, I was uh, helping out a, a therapist named Nathaniel Brandon, uh, who had been a disciple of Ayn Rand, and uh, he created the concept of um, uh, self-esteem. He wrote mm-hmm. the book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, thing, and he did fantastic um, uh, weekends. Well, you know, self-help yeah, growth. Like retreats kids. or something. Yeah. And I remember standing up and saying to him at one point, oh, I'm, I'm so afraid of dying. I said, I'm just so afraid of dying. I, I'm just, that's all I can think about is how afraid I am of dying. And he said to me, you're not afraid enough of dying. Whoa. <laughs> I, went, I went, okay. All I right. There we go. Yeah. You're not afraid, afraid enough. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's all she wrote. And right also there, the folks. other thing is we have an assumption, humans have an assumption, and Americans more than most from uh, what a doctor friend of mine told me, is we really think we're supposed to live forever. Yeah. You know, that's right. not the deal. No. <laughs> Never was the deal. <laughs> Not what we signed up for. Yeah, it's in. Yeah, we we we, we, kept, we arrived here, and a friend of mine wrote a wonderful piece about 
thanking the universe for giving her eyes mm. during this lifetime so she could look at things. Wow. And I thought, wow, what a waste of time being afraid or worrying when you could look at something. Yes. You know, you can, I look out my window right here. My neighbor has a bunch of bird feeders. And because it's New England, the number of birds that you see. And there's like, at one point I looked out the window, there were 16 bright yellow finches all over the bird feeder. That right there. Like, could you imagine like if we could just look at those kinds of gifts that are just constantly yeah. presented? And if we could remember. Remember. That that's what, that's what it's all about. You know, the, the, uh, the spiritual quote people, it's interesting, have a, the ones that are legitimate, you know, that I know, the people who really have meditated and worked on themselves and educated themselves, um, they all say that this time of trouble is waking up all of the good people. We're all waking up to the fact that, that there are values that need to be preserved wow. that we haven't thought about in a long time. And that we're finding each other. Yeah, it, it, it literally took something like this to happen. Yeah. For us to well, find Well, not only that, but we talk about it because of the way they advertise it, the 51 covers of, you know, uh, um, <laughs> the magazine, the way they advertise this, you know, and they had influenza, yeah. the influenza epidemic. My parents lived through that and they never even mentioned it. But it, we, it wasn't the same kind of press about it. That internet all. again. Yeah. The drama wasn't there. They just, people did whatever they could do about it, and that was that. But, you know, how different is that than the Black Plague? Black Plague would come to London in the summer, and everybody would hop on their horse and go to their country homes and pray they didn't get it and leave all the poor people there to die. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah. Again, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, could you imagine? Like, I, I sometimes I romanticize about because I grew up in the '80s, and and there were no cell phones, there were no internet. Oh yeah, and you know, you went to the store to buy a record. Could you imagine like that again? So, like, think about all of the advancements into us being connected. You know the internet and whatever else we have through social media and all that kind of stuff. But if I, I romanticize about stripping that all away. Again. Oh, wait, I cannot tell you how much I and how much I feel is lost. But then I think every generation, when you get to my age, looks back and goes, you know, I got a cell phone. I remember driving around New York city to find a phone booth in order to make a call. I remember automatic, I still do it, automatically walking in the door of my house and heading to the answering service. I remember the miracle of an answering service. And I remember uh, there's a girl, a wonderful woman actually, who's a waitress at a restaurant that Bill and I go to all the time, a woman we really like. And she was talking about, she had finally seen a push button phone, an antique. <laughs> I want to say, do you ever see the one that goes yeah, around? Yeah, rotaries. Yeah, yeah. I grew up <laughs> she with never those. Never even knew what a rotary phone was. 
She's in her thirties, has two children, doesn't know what. Oh, wait, I got to tell you my absolute best. Okay. Was it in a coffee shop in New York? Uh, in comes a father with his toddler. They get the big high chair to pull up to the end of the table. He puts the toddler in the high chair and he takes out a little computer and the kid opens the computer and starts running the computer. And he puts down beside the computer a sippy cup. And I'm saying oh my to myself, gosh. this kid can run a computer and he can't drink from a glass. Can't drink from a glass. What does the world come to? I don't know. It, but, it, but that, I took a picture of it. I just was so struck by what a difference that is. Not only that, but we didn't have sippy cups. We just kept knocking over our orange shoes onto the table. And wow. getting yelled at. Right. <laughs> it's fascinating, Joan. Like, um, what you've seen, you know, I mean, the, 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 uh, the amount of progress and I don't, I don't know if progress is a good word, but, um, just what you've seen in terms of technologically, um, and, uh, industrially what's changed over oh, the yeah. decades you've seen. is just, it's pretty fascinating. Like, well, this is an interesting thing too, to me coming back to film and all that. My daughter, Emma, actually taught me something really powerful from a documentary project she was working on for class. The silent era of filmmakers were dominated by women. Did you know that? No, I, I knew a little bit about it. Um, I, I did notice, and I think this is really funny, is that in, in the, later on, uh, the, all the editors were women. Yeah, And the reason why they were women was because the guys who came out to Hollywood to open the studios were all cloak and suitors from the garment district. So they were used to seeing women cut things up and sew them together. Come on, are you serious? I swear to God, I'm, I'm, the, 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 the conclusion is mine. But that was a fact. Those were the only jobs that women had at that time. If we, you know, when, they, when the cloak and suitors took over, when something needed to be oh, cut and God. stitched together... <laughs> I hired women because that's what they knew. That makes so much sense to me. But the thing is, is like there's a an intuitive like uh, inner sense of uh, truth seeking and identifying that I think a woman has more than a man. I think in terms of of what makes a good editor. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I really, I just, I sort of can't comment on it because. Um, I do believe firmly that there are real differences between men and women. And I'm oh, yeah. virulently against the whiners in the women's movement. You know, mm. the women who, oh, it's so hard to get a job. Well, it's hard to get a job directing. If you were a kangaroo, it'd be hard to get a job. If you were a man, it's hard to get a job, you know. Um, and also, I think the whining about it, and this makes me very unpopular with many of my friends, I think the whining about it infantilizes women. We should be talking about how to get a job or start our own studios, not be whining about the fact that a man won't give me a job. And yeah, I think then you're that still attitude, beholden to the man. Yeah, that, that attitude um, is one of the reasons why I think I was very successful, because... 
I never paid any attention to any nonsense. I just didn't even hear it, you know. And if somebody didn't do their job of trying to give me grief as a woman, they got the proper grief back until they did their job. You know, but that's two older brothers. <laughs> I had two older brothers and I knew how to that's Hold one of the reasons why I, I took the job. I took the job directing because I knew that part of it I knew how to do. Really also good. I like yeah, I like guys. <laughs> I like men. So I don't, you know and 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 to me a jerk is a jerk. It doesn't gender has nothing to do with it. Oh, that's so healthy, Joan. I, it's like actually really refreshing for me to hear that because I think even as, you know, a white male director who's, I've got, you know, like a handful of scripts, I've got a screenplay that I've got two wonderful actors who are responding really positively to the material on, um, Guy Pierce and Hugo Weaving. Oh, um, wow. And yeah, I'm so happy and excited and I can't, I'm just like oh, so ready fabulous. for that thing to be, to be greenlit. But it's almost like for a second there, I, I kind of felt like a, I entered into a black hole because it's like, oh, wrong place, wrong time. I'm a white, I'm a white male director and I'm straight. I, there's no hope for me. It, it's over. Yeah, you right. know what I mean? I was going to say one misfortune after another. Yeah, exactly. So, but I think hearing that from you is kind of, it's, it's a, it's consoling for me to hear. It's like, yeah, I guess an a, an asshole is an asshole. It doesn't yeah. matter and I mean, what the, gender you are. And I also, I mean, I despise and and deplore things like a woman congressman said that she was sexually harassed by a male congressman who said to her, I was thinking about you in the shower today. I said, are you telling me, what, what are you, you were sexually harassed? I mean, are you, I, you know, I grew up in an era where, where we just said, you know, no, or we knew where to put a well-placed knee if somebody was. Right. <laughs> yes. But, but also I, that's different than physical assault, but this whole political correctness thing is insane. It's really insane. And part of it is, um, I, as I say, like you know, I'm, I'm my my husband is six four, you know, all muscle. Uh, I couldn't mess around with him. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I love that. Mm. It's like Virginia Woolf. I absolutely love that. But at the same time, there was no way that never even became a discussion about my career. There was, mm. you know, that's, that's what I, if I wanted to stay home, that would be fine. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's so, uh, it's so crazy out there now. And as I say, a jerk is a jerk and they come in both genders or all five genders. All five genders. Yeah. This is a, this is a, a, a huge gift for me, Joan, that I even got to spend like two hours talking to you about just wisdom you've gleaned from life experience like that's huge <laughs> okay. for me oh i'm so glad yeah well, I, I feel like i say i feel in very connected uh, hmm. in our exchanges from the class and hmm. then i loved your film i just absolutely loved oh, your film. oh thank you yeah really really great 
Thank you so, so much, John. Wait yeah, for I'm the black the... hole to disappear so you can make the next one. I'm hoping. See, yeah. you're not you're not a, a white straight male. You're a director. I know. I know. I, 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 know. I, I mean, thanks for saying that. But like deep down, I just know that I'm a director. I just deep, deep down. Mm -hmm. I just that's just who I am. I can't help it. Yeah. I'll, di I'll direct, you know, uh, uh, I'll just come upon any scene, whether it be a kitchen that is unorganized. And it's like, well, if right. you put this over here, this over here, then it'll be more efficient. It'll actually be aesthetic, you know, whatever it is. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. What well, can I ask you? Um, what 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 do you see that allows you to say that so affirmatively? What about you? Yeah, that you're a director. Oh, yeah. one, the questions you asked. Two, your delight as you got to things that you really knew about, but no, I guess nobody had ever said out loud to you before mm. not that they were unique to me but but here was somebody saying this is really cool and you're going oh god yeah i've never i haven't been able to put that into words but that's uh, the we share an understanding of what uh of what work is and why we do it and what fun it is and how hard it is and how good that it is hard and all that i knew that about you and then mm. the the letter you sent me um and watching you, you know, because I had a gallery, I could see everybody all the time. I insisted on that. And, you know, I saw when people laughed and when they got a joke or when they said, so I was already, <laughs> you know, aware of you. Then when you sent that question letter, that I really was impressed with that letter. Then when you uh, uh, sent your understanding, it's not that often that I meet people who get... It's not me, but get the information that I love so much and love it the same way. That doesn't happen very often. So all of that was going on. But then when I saw your film, which was the last thing I saw in our in this, I I just I told you at the time I went, I I told my husband as a matter of fact, I said, "Holy macro!" I said, "This is a great film, absolutely great film." So they. Yeah, that means a well, lot. I think you have a sense of humor. I think you like people. Oh, I think you I have a very people. good sense of story. I think oh, you like to play. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and I, and actually, it was Sanford Meisner who gave me the permission to do that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Th this is this is huge, um, Joan. I'm I just uh, I'm so 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 grateful just for your time and. It's wonderful conversation. Just, yeah, uh, it's just I could talk to you all day. Seriously, this is this is the best. Um, and well, I do. I feel that connection. Wait, what did you say, Bill? Can we have lunch first? And Bill says, "Can we have <laughs> lunch first? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that but, uh, I, I think that's that, permissible. Yeah, yeah, I would love to stay in touch with you. Oh. And I also I love the idea having heard the knowing you. I love the idea of having this conversation with you because you would ask me questions that would make me think or touch on things that I'd forgotten about and stuff like that. So mm. it's really fun for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, who, who likes a one-way conversation? Jeez. <laughs> well, it depends on who I'm in the room with. <laughs> yeah, right. True. Yeah. 
Good point. Yeah. Um, well, uh, give uh, Bill my, a big thanks from me for uh, I will uh, all the time you gave me. And um, yeah, yeah. Um, seriously, Joan, this has been a pleasure for me, and I cannot wait to share this uh, this podcast with the rest of the world because oh, thank you. you gave me pure gold. Okay, wisdom, cool. wisdom from um, from Lady Wisdom, Joan <laughs> Darling, everybody. That was lovely. Thank you, my friend. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's stay in touch, and I'll just keep you posted, and you keep me posted. Yeah, and, keep me yeah. posted when it's going to be on and all of that. And I'll yeah, for look, sure. I want to listen to the others as well. Wonderful. Okay. Great. Well, you're the best. <laughs> oh, thank you, sweetheart. Take care. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. In my next episode, I speak with poet and Trappist monk, Brother Paul Quinnen. While most of the modern world is experiencing a new way of living amidst this COVID-19 pandemic, Brother Paul has practiced the art of pausing in silence at Our Lady of Gethsemane Monastery in rural Kentucky for the past 60 years. Fifteen of those years, Paul studied under the nonviolent agitator and world-renowned author Thomas Merton. I hope you'll join us. Peace to you until then, and bye-bye for now.